Hello, everybody. This is James Gunn. I am the writer and the director of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, a movie which I spent the, basically the past nearly three years working on and has just come out in theaters as we record this just a few days ago. And I'm a really very proud of this film. It's a continuation of the story that we told in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, but it also goes a lot deeper into the characters and we get to know the characters a little bit better. last movie we had the marvel studios logo a little later after the flashback at the beginning but the marvel studios logo has gotten much longer since then so it was a little strange when we tried that this time here we start off in missouri uh st charles missouri to be specific um this is right near where i grew up in reality and uh, i thought it was a great place for star lord a character of course whom i relate to quite a bit we have a Ford Mustang Cobra, uh, 1979, and uh, most obscure Easter egg of all time, the license plate was the license plate of my Buick Electra when I was in high school. There we have Meredith Quill and Kurt Russell playing the character of Ego. He is uh, made much younger by a great company called Lola who has done wonderful visual effects on his face. The way we do that is we shoot Kurt acting out the scene. We have a great guy uh, standing by who's watching and he, he watches him and then he mimics him in the same shot doing exactly what he did and then basically we merge his skin onto Kurt's face uh, to create young Kurt Russell who looks almost identical to used cars era Kurt Russell. I actually think that Ego is a little bit older than Meredith Quill here. I didn't want to make him too young. I think that she is very young. She's probably 19, 20 years old. Uh, we've actually made her a little younger as well as Kurt. And she's very taken up by this older, dashing gentleman who she knows is a spaceman. Um, and he's stolen her heart. And as we learn later, uh, she tells people that the father of young Peter is a, an alien, especially after she has brain cancer, and people think that she's gone insane, that she's crazy, and it ends up being a difficult time for young Peter Quill and his time here on Earth. traveling through the plant we're seeing the light and here we are 34 years later now a lot of people notice that this movie takes place in 2014 that's nearly three years before exactly three years before the movie actually uh, was released that's because um, this movie takes place only two months after guardians of the galaxy volume one baby Groot and he's only a couple months old now, when I was writing the screenplay, uh, I really wanted to, uh, at first I was going to actually have Groot full grown in this movie, but something seemed repetitive about it, something seemed not exactly right, and so uh, I suddenly came upon the idea to have baby Groot still be a baby. I know he was very popular in his stick form at the end of the first movie, and I thought he would be uh, a fun character to have in the film and ends up being one of the favorites of the movie along here with uh, Dave Bautista's Drax, of course, who people love. Blame Quill! He's the one who 
We shot this scene on the very first day of shooting the movie. This was everybody coming back together, and I was really happy with how everybody had upped their game. They had all learned a lot from the first movie coming out. All of their performances were better. They all took uh, less direction in many ways, um, although I was much harder on all of the actors in this movie, really trying to get the performance as great as I possibly could. Here comes the multidimensional beast named the Abelisk, who is wanting to eat the batteries. So this shot here is one long shot. Um, that is uh, Baby Groot is about to dance. Um, I was the motion reference for Baby Groot dancing, so somewhere in secret vaults there is me doing all of these dance moves for Baby Groot. This shot was not finished until about a week and a half before the release of the film in, uh, in Europe, and it took a long, long time. There were over 4,000 iterations of this one long shot. It was an incredibly difficult shot, one of the biggest visual effects shots of all time. I think I need to give a shout out to Chris Townsend, our visual effects supervisor, who was really truly one of my primary partners on this film and added in every way to making this a great movie and just went out of his way to not only make the visual effects shots as perfect as possible, but also would listen to me and, and go through a lot of different versions and and uh, I had very specific ideas about everything from the way the characters move to the eye movement to the colors. In the background there is uh, Matter Splatter, what, that's what we call it. It is definitely influenced by my work with Suda51 on the video game Lollipop Chainsaw. This combination of incredibly brilliant, bright, beautiful colors and the darkness of what's happening around them, which is exemplified by Baby Groot's dancing. I think this, this scene is actually really good for the Guardians in, in, in terms of what they're about. This is basically, this is a movie that has all the spectacle and dynamic scenes of any big spectacle film, but really it is about the interaction between the characters. It is in many ways an independent film just with a lot of enormous, enormous scenes and explosions, but what we focus on are the characters, and we're focusing on Baby Groot here, even though there's this enormous uh, battle going on in the background with this wonderful abelisk who I tried to design after a pinky mouse, his skin, and he's got this little fur on him that's incredibly disgusting when you see it up close, uh, but I like the abelisk a lot. He's a poor guy. We'd make a lot of jokes of him while we were doing the scene that he really just wants to come down and have friends and is now being brutally attacked by the Guardians for no reason. But that's not real. That's, uh, that's just a joke. You're going to see a lot of uh, me during this movie talking about my friends in the movie. I know on the last commentary I did for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, I got some criticism because everybody is my friend and... Uh, and listen, I'm, it's, it's going to be worse on this movie because I really did put all, some, all of my very best friends in this film, and you'll see that throughout. So this is where the, uh, the this is the end of that one long shot. So this whole entire time was one shot. We, we put it together through different elements. Part of it is completely visual effects. Part of it is elements that we shot. Um, basically, 
And, you know, like I said, that scene took almost the entire length of, of shooting to put together. I turned it over, you know, right a few days into shooting because it was exactly what we planned out from the beginning. I drew those storyboards for that shot probably in October or November of uh, 2014, and it eventually came out just a couple of weeks before the, the movie was finished. So it took a long, long time to do that shot. I realize that. Dave Batista really, uh, I'm going to mention it again, just really just killed it in this movie. He's an amazing actor, a tremendous talent. He is incredibly funny, and he's got such warmth and depth to him. I really love him. I love this shot here of of rocket shooting at the abelisk it took a long these shots took a long time this whole opening sequence took a long time frame store is the uh, visual effects company that worked on this sequence they were the ones who basically created uh, the character of, of rocket and how he moved and who he was and they uh, came back into this movie they taught the other visual effects companies how they how to create rocket and rocket of course takes a lot of work he actually takes a lot more work than Baby Groot does to create. Uh, Zoe Saldana actually did that stunt there of, of falling down the beast. It was uh, She's an incredibly athletic performer, and she was a dancer, and she's able to do so many of these stunts herself. There you get the hair on the obelisk that looks like inside the ear of an old man. Vanquish the beast! <laughs> what? I created a, a really complex color pattern for the movie um, with uh, different, different colors for every scene. So the first thing I do is I write the screenplay. And the second thing I do is I create a color story. So I take color swatches, and for every scene in the movie, I create one or two or three different colors for each scene that talk about you know, that, that basically will be what the production designer and the costume designer will base their colors on. For instance, here it's gold and, and this navy blue color. Um, so everything is really centered around those two colors. We keep things much more simple in this movie. We got a lot more shout-outs for how visually arresting Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is, but we actually have fewer colors. They're just bolder choices, and um, we have many fewer of them, you know, per scene, but they also get a little bit more complex as the story goes on, and they go in and out of brighter colors and darker colors that uh, tell the story in and of themselves. Uh, repulsive. I'm not into that kind of casual... Oh, please. Elizabeth Debicki plays Aisha, and she was an absolute joy to work with. Um, I'm famous for auditioning hundreds of actors uh, for each role that we cast. Uh, for instance, the role of Mantis, which is coming up later. I auditioned probably a couple hundred actresses for that role. Elizabeth Debicki's character was different. We, we auditioned uh, one actress, who I liked a lot, and then we auditioned Elizabeth Debicki. And I was like, this role is tailor-made for her. Um, she's a beautiful and stunning woman. Uh, absolute incredible presence to her. She's, you know, six foot three, I believe, and uh, was perfect for the role of Aisha. And so I cast her there on the spot, and uh, she's a, a dynamite person, Australian woman. And your father. He ain't from Missouri. 
Here we have Peter Quill. We set up the story of he and his father. That is the center of this movie. It is, there's, I think, kind of three or four different stories that are the center stories in, in, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. More so than Volume 1, this is a multi-protagonist film. Uh, we have Rocket's story, which is very specific. We have Gamora's story, which is very specific. And we have Peter Quill's story, which is very specific. Those are generally the, the central stories of the movie, and each one of them has something to overcome. But with Peter Quill, it's his search for a father and what he needs to get out of that. I think so much of this movie was really influenced by a time when, on the first film, Chris Pratt, Dave Bautista, and I we're backstage at an Apple iStore, uh, what, I don't know what they call them, an Apple Store event uh, podcast in England. And the first movie was about to come out. Here's Lakeshore Drive uh, by Aliata Haynes and Jeremiah. Um, the song is uh, one of my favorites in the movie. This is a song that was only a regional hit in, and I'll get back to the other story in a second, but it was only a regional hit in, uh, in like St. Louis and Chicago. So people only from the center of the country know this song, but it's a classic there. It plays on classic rock radio, and, uh, and it's, it's an incredibly catchy song. And I think one of the most exciting things about putting the soundtrack together is that we're bringing these songs to people all over the world that might be forgotten. And I think this is one of those songs. I think that volume two, the soundtrack is a little bit different in that it's a little bit more mature than the soundtrack to volume one. The, the songs were for a kind of a younger child in volume one, a little bit of an older child in volume two, because Meredith Quill knows how old her son is, obviously. And um, we have a mix here of incredibly popular songs like Fleetwood Mac's The Chain and... Uh, you know, Cheap Tricks, Surrender, and George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, and then songs that hardly anyone knows, like um, Lakeshore Drive, or at least anyone outside of St. Louis and Chicago, and then Wham, uh, Bam, uh, by, by Silver, which I didn't know. These are, uh, you know, uh, it's a much different soundtrack than the first movie. But I think my promise to the fans is really that these Guardians of the Galaxy films are going to keep changing, and they're going to be different. They're going to evolve. They're not going to remain the same. I cannot... You know, one of the difficulties of making a sequel, one of the challenges, one of the pitfalls, is that you can just try to recreate the first film. So you think, oh, well, we had a dance-off in the first film. What was our dance-off scene going to be? What's our We Are Groot scene going to be? And that's what I tried to avoid in this film. I think it goes in its own path. Um, it is a much more emotional film, which is probably the thing people talk about the most. Um, but I just allow the characters to grow and to change. I think the relationship here between Gamora and Nebula is one of them where you see them grow and change the most. In the first movie, we think that Nebula is absolutely evil and Gamora's a hero. And in this movie, I think we learn that the story is a little bit deeper than that and that their background is not so cut and dried. Uh, anyway, I was talking about Dave Batista and Chris Pratt and I at the Apple Store event in London. And we were backstage, about to go out on stage, and we put our arms around each other. And we could all feel that something really big was about to happen with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, that something was going to be very different about this project, something very special for all of us, and it was going to probably change us. And we said to each other, you know, guys, let's just promise that we will remain ourselves and remain 
down to earth and be, you know, put our relationships first and uh, put our integrity first. And it was a moment sort of without ego in a moment when I knew that ego was about to attack all of us. Chris Pratt was about to become the biggest movie star in the world. Uh, Dave Bautista was about to have a kind of cinematic success that I don't think he ever dreamed of. And I uh, was about to become a, a director who was, you know, went from doing, you know, $3 million movies and $10 million movies to making uh, one of the biggest hits of the year. And I think that moment of humility and that moment of love between the three of us is really what drove this film and it what drives me with these movies i don't think i would keep making uh guardians movies and as many of you probably know i'm already signed on to do guardians of the galaxy volume three and i'm hard at work at it already even though this movie just came out i don't think that i would ever do that without the the love that i i share with uh those guys and with their help and helping me remain down to earth and you know, when you have a, a guy like Chris Pratt, who is a truly kind person, a kind human being, um, and he's number one on the call sheet, and uh, you really create a different atmosphere on set amongst the crew, amongst the cast. And I think it's the important thing of, uh, you know, about the Guardians is that, you know, that kindness is a part of what we do and that humility is a part of what we do. But I won't say it hasn't been without its challenges. It hasn't been... You know, having a successful franchise has been difficult at times. And uh, you meet a lot of people who want a lot of different things from you. And you can easily get sucked up in it all. And I think that this movie is really about my journey with Chris and Dave and the rest of the cast in terms of not letting ego destroy us and instead destroying our own ego to some degree. Ah, so this is a space chase. This was one of the most difficult scenes to take, you know, to tell uh, in the movie. Um, we spent a lot of time, Framestore again was the company that did the visual effects for this, and we spent a lot of time uh, shooting inside and outside. One of the things I tried to do, there's a lot more uh, camera movement inside the spacecraft. One of the things that always bothered me about space operas is you have all this outside moving cameras um, and then inside is kind of like one basic shot of whoever's driving and I, I wanted to avoid that in this scene. I storyboard the entire movie uh, very early on. Every single scene in the movie I draw the first pass of the sort of stick figure versions of what's happening in every shot and to me you know, the most creative, the most fun part of making a movie, in a lot of ways, is, is the initial part, because it's writing the story, it's coming up with the visuals, it's trying to create what happens in the movie. The rest of it gets to be sometimes very difficult work, because it's just trying to create on screen what I visualized in my head uh, from the very beginning. And this movie in particular, I felt like I had... Uh, the ability to do that because of the budget and uh, because of the freedom. And like I was saying earlier, I worked very hard with both the camera people, Henry Bram is our cinematographer, and I had a very good relationship with him, and with the actors in terms of really taking my time and pushing uh, the actors to make sure we get the best performance out of each of them, and really taking my, my time and pushing the camera people to make sure that every shot is as beautiful as it can possibly be. I think on the first film, I was coming from independent movies, 
And I came from a place where my previous film, Super, was a film I did 52, you know, 54 setups a day with one camera, meaning, you know, 54 different shots a day at times um, with a single camera. And I was moving incredibly quickly. And that's the only thing I could do to finish that movie because it was a complicated movie shot in, you know, 20-something days. On this movie, uh, on Guardians 1, I still had this sort of need to move very quickly. Um, and I think it actually, it was something I regretted on the first movie. I think that there were, you know, performance moments in there that I didn't think were as good as they could have been. The thing that doesn't cost you that much money is to take a little bit more time shooting on set to create this movie that you really want to create and never, never settling for second best in anything. And so that's what I did with all of this. Who cares? That's the jump point. Go, go. It's a guy. This is the crash on the bear heart. There's baby Groot eating candies. I get a lot of messages on social networking sites asking me what kind of candy is baby Groot eating? Is that Skittles? Is that M&M's? And the answer is no, it is space candy. It is in fact uh, the space candy that we see all over the ship in the first movie uh, from that Peter Quill likes to eat. He's a big candy fan. In fact, his shirt, which many people ask me, what does his shirt say on it? Is it Yeehab Beachy? Um, no, it is a foreign language that means gear shift, uh, which is a type of candy that uh, Peter Quill uh, particularly adores. He's a, got a very big sweet tooth, Peter Quill. That last shot there was, I think that might have been the last shot that was finished um, making the movie uh, from visual effects. Those little guys, uh, I gave those guys a name. I forget what they're called, but I think we're going to see more of them in the future. I like those little dudes. Here is the crash landing site on Bearheart. Uh, this entire forest was inside of an incredibly huge soundstage. We built an enormous forest, and we shot there for an awful long time because we shot this scene. Uh, we shot uh, a bunch of other scenes that you'll see, all the stuff that takes place with Rocket and Baby Groot and Nebula on this planet. I loved this this day, um, shooting the scene. We had a, a great time shooting the characters acting. We were having a particularly fun time. Uh, Sean Gunn plays Kraglin in this movie, who's a great character, but he also plays Rocket on set. And we use a lot of Sean's facial expressions for Rocket and this was a scene in which he was particularly good, and this is all that's all Sean right there. That looking back and forth, it's very much him. A uh, company called Method did Rocket and the visual effects in this this scene and many others in the movie. Someone follows you through the jump point. 
And there we have Ego's spaceship for the first time. It took a long time to design it. Um, I very much wanted a very simple egg shape that had a technological, a technology to it that was different from the technology that was in other spaceships that we see within uh, the Guardians verse. Um, so that's, it's kind of an unexplainable technology. We don't quite understand how it moves through space. It certainly isn't the motorized Ravager ships that Quill and the Ravagers drive um, that, that use jump points through space to move around. I think trying to set up a little bit more how these characters move through space was one of the things we wanted to do with this movie. And so we created this idea of jump points through outer space. And who the hell are you? There we have uh, Pom Clementiev as Mantis and Kurt Russell as Ego. Kurt Russell, of course, is one of my heroes. I spent a lot of time uh, as a kid running around in my backyard pretending to be Snake Plissken from Escape from New York or, uh, you know, Rocky Balboa or, or John Rambo, uh, which roles that Sylvester Stallone played. And I got to work with both of them in this movie, which was uh, fun. There is Molly Quinn, who you might recognize from Castle as Howard the Duck's friend. Uh, Molly is a good friend of mine um, and her boyfriend, uh, Alan Gale. I actually introduced them, who's a producer on The Bachelor. You'll see him again as one of Sylvester Stallone's henchmen. I love this shot of Yandu. Um, I think we, we come to him on Contraxia. He looks pretty darn miserable. Tommy Flanagan uh, plays Tulk, the character that was dancing down there. He's a fantastic actor, really amazing. Now we're going to get into the part with It's All My Friends, because there on the left you have Jimmy Urine. On the right you have Stevie Blackheart, who plays Brawl. Jimmy Urine plays Half Nut. Um, all of the Ravagers really, truly are my best friends. You will not be able to come to a party without seeing most of them. And Michael Rosenbaum as Martinex, who's one of my best friends, and Sylvester Stallone uh, as Stakar, who is also known as Starhawk in the comics. And we see now that in the same way we took the character of Yandu from the comics and we made him a little bit of an older guy played by Michael Rooker, um, we also have taken the rest of the uh, original Guardians of the Galaxy, the ones who were the original Guardians of the Galaxy in the comic books, and turned them all into heads of the Ravager families. The MCU um, is not the same as the Marvel comics universe which is the 616 universe it's different it's a reflection of it and we take the same characters and their archetypes and build them in a different way into a movie I told you before i didn't know what was going on you didn't know because you didn't want to know because i made you rich i demand a seat at the table i wear these flames same as you you may dress like us but you'll never hear the horns of freedom when you die young dude and the colors of a gourd will never lash over your grave if you think Michael Rooker uh, in this movie is really perhaps the standout of all the performances turns in an incredibly uh, nuanced and beautiful performance as this lost pirate who has sort of given up his humanity and lost everything that he's ever 
uh, wanted. We, we learn here that he has done um, something wrong with delivering children and dealing in children, with, uh, which is the reason that Stakar and the other Ravagers kicked him out of the Ravagers. They exiled him. And all of the terrible Ravagers followed Yandu into exile. So he's got all these bad people, like there's Jeff the Ravager, played by Steve Agee, and, uh, and Joe Freya, uh, who plays the Pink Ravager there, and Tommy, and my friend Evan Jones, who plays Wretch. <laughs> they really, truly all are all my friends. Chris Sullivan, who you might recognize from the—maybe you probably don't recognize him. He's on the TV show This Is Us, plays Taserface. And here are some of my favorite shots of Elizabeth Debicki as Aisha. Uh, Judy Ann, our costume designer, did an amazing job on these costumes. And there's Hannah, who plays the chambermaid. We see a bit more of her in this movie. Um, and this nice moment of the blue skin against the white snow falling down over Yandu's face. And he's confronted with some sort of choice here by these wonderful golden people. Or terrible golden people, depending on which way you look at it. I have a proposition for you. I hired Yondu to pick you up when your mother passed away. But instead of returning you, Yondu... Here's the campfire scene. Uh, it was one of the first days I got to work with Kurt Russell. It was a lot of fun. Kurt and Chris and I uh, spent time working on the scenes beforehand in rehearsal. I like to rehearse with all of the actors before we shoot. So we have a couple of weeks of rehearsal. People ask me all the time, is there ever improv in the movies? And really, there's very little improv. I like to have things pretty tightly scripted. You know, my, my experience in the past is when you start to get too improv -y, you start to do things that people find very funny on set and then are not as funny as what was originally written, which took, you know, years to write and put into place. Uh, usually you have the best possible thing. Every once in a while you find little moments of of improv that are great, but for the most part, things are very tightly scripted. However, if there ever is any improv, uh, it usually comes while we are doing rehearsals, where I'm kind of making sure that the dialogue I've written works, that it fits the actors who are saying the words, and wondering if there's places where I can improve or, or make things funnier, and you find little moments that you can use while you're shooting. You know exactly what to focus on. I changed my storyboards at that time because I see what works in terms of movement or not. And I draw pretty complex maps for uh, the sequences with camera angles and so forth. Here we have He's Whistling Brandy, the song that is pretty important to this film. And here we have Palm Clementiev as Mantis. Um, She's a really important uh, new cast member, and she's someone I've come to truly love and appreciate throughout this process. I do not know if I've ever written any character who an actress has come in and more completely fulfilled that role perfectly. Um, I think the, the one that's the closest, actually, is sitting right next to her is Dave Bautista, because I can't imagine anyone in the world playing Drax except Dave Bautista, and in the same way, I can't imagine anyone um, playing Mantis but Palm Clementia. I'd say the only difference is, is that Dave, you know, I've actually changed Drax a little bit more to suit Dave over the past few years, whereas, you know, Palm just came in and she slipped into the role perfectly. I just made it up. <laughs> Give me a break. 
After all this time, you're gonna show up and just all of a sudden you wanna be my dad? I hear you. No, and by the way, this could be a trap, okay? The Creepurists, the Ravagers, they all want us dead. I know, but... But what? What was that story you told me about Zardu Hasselfrau? Who? He owned a magic boat. David Hasselhoff? Right. Not a magic boat, a talking car. Why did he talk again? To help him fight crime and to be supportive. As a child, you would carry his picture in your pocket and you would tell all the other children that he was your father, but that he was out of town. Shooting Knight Rider or touring with his band in Germany. I told you that when I was drunk. Why are you bringing that up now? I love that story. I hate that story. It's so sad. As a kid, I used to see... This is a kind of a combination of taking a dramatic scene in the movie along with the comedic scene, talking about David Hasselhoff and what he means to Peter Quill. David Hasselhoff, of course, was star of the show Knight Rider and the show Baywatch. And, you know, Peter Quill pretended he was his father. And this seems like a throwaway scene about Hasselhoff. But as the movie goes on, Hasselhoff becomes an incredibly important part of the film. He's not a fox. Shoot her. She does anything suspicious. Mm, Or if you feel like it. Okay. Hey, it'll be just a couple of days. We'll be back before Rockets finish fixing the ship. This is Fleetwood Mac's The Chain. Again, a very uh, important song in the movie. A beautiful song, a wonderful, amazing song. Um, And we get to uh, hear it here. You know, I've been very lucky in that every single song I've ever asked to be cleared by our music supervisor, Dave Jordan, on both volumes one and two has been cleared. I've never asked for a song that hasn't been cleared, which is great, because I can really tell the story I want to tell. To get everybody to hate you? Because it's working. People ask about how I put the soundtrack together a lot. And the truth is, is I have a list of about 500 songs that I think of as Meredith Quill songs, songs she would really love. And in that list... I keep that on a, you know, files on my computer. And as I'm writing the screenplay, uh, actually, as I'm writing the treatment before the screenplay, I'll go through it and I'll find songs that fit a moment or a place that needs a song, and I'll search out a song that'll fit the moment. Sometimes I'll have to go outside of that list of 500 songs and go a little bit deeper and find something that is um, more appropriate, uh, which which I'll do at times, but uh, I write them all into the treatment. And then when I give uh, everyone that original story, uh, I'll give that story to uh, Marvel and I'll give them a, a compact disc, an old school compact disc with the songs on it so that they can listen to the uh, listen to all the music along with the treatment. And they know exactly what we're getting into. And we really we do that from the beginning. We play into uh when we're playing the music on set, we play it on set. We'll put earbuds in the actors' ears so that they can hear the music that's playing. We'll put earbuds in the camera people's ears so that they can move to the songs. And we don't only do this with the soundtrack songs. We do this with the score as well. Um, we have, well, here we have uh, Palm uh, as Mantis using her superpower for the first time, which is she can touch someone and she can 
feel their feelings, not their thoughts, but their feelings. She's an empath. And then she can also touch people and, and mildly change their feelings. She can make them do what she wants or make them feel the way she wants. Maybe not do, but make them feel the way she wants. Anyway, I was talking about the, the score with Tyler Bates. I'll give Tyler Bates the screenplay um, very early on, and uh, and he will write songs or write you know score to the scenes, and then we will play that music during those scenes uh, on set. I find that music and sound in general is an undervalued part of the cinematic experience. People concentrate on the visuals a lot, and so do I, obviously, but. I also think that sound is often underutilized. And when I first came into Hollywood and started making movies, I was astounded that people were not choosing songs for the movie until after the movie, uh, you know, was finished. And sometimes not even, you know, already edited and putting songs in, not even editing to the songs, which I thought was just ridiculous. Uh, songs are so important. The music is so important. It's such an important emotional element of the film-going experience, you'd think people would take more care with it. And so that's why the score and the soundtrack is so incredibly important to me. He lies awake at night thinking about his progeny. Do one of those on me. Sweet. We are now back on Bear Heart with... Rocket and Groot and Nebula, and we get to see the Ravagers approaching. Uh, this song is Southern Nights by Glen Campbell. This was my favorite song when I was a very, very young child. I was very lucky a couple of years ago to go to a 4th of July party at Jane Seymour's house, of all places, and Glen Campbell was there, and he sat down around a campfire with maybe eight of us, and he played his songs um, you know, for one of the, you know, one of the last concerts, I guess, concerts. <laughs> that is Jimmy Urine from uh, the band Mindless Self-Indulgence, who also happens to be one of my best buddies in the world. Uh, we hang out a lot. We travel together. Um, we've been friends for a long time. Baby Groot and Rocket in this sequence were done by a company called Trickster. They did marvelous work. And they really, really nailed it. Huh? We'll see some interesting shots here in a second. It's something that I did a lot in this move. That's, this shot was incredibly intense. That's all real, not all real explosions, but almost all real explosions. It's a real camera move through real trees, and then we put rocket into it, and we had all these explosions. This shot here is multiple layers of different actors moving at different speeds. So at the very top layer, uh, we have a, a guy by the name of Guy who's a stuntman, and we have him moving in incredibly slow phantom speeds, you know, a thousand uh, frames or so a second. And then right below him, the next layer is a little bit faster, a little bit less frames per second. And below him, uh, those guys are a little bit faster so that there's this weird sort of accordion feel of them coming towards us, but they're all moving at different speeds. 
these variated speeds are something that I do throughout the movie. In particular later, and I'll talk about it more then, when we get to the arrow sequence, we do it like uh, I don't think anyone's ever done it before. These were all difficult shots for us to do because we have a lot of really interactive shots with Rocket interacting and jumping along these guys' heads and hitting them and, and knocking them around. Here we have a Rocket about to face uh, my best friend in the world, Stevie Blackheart. He's a few, one of the few people that's acted in two different roles in two different Marvel movies because he played the dispatcher of In Nowhere in the first Guardians of the Galaxy. And now he's back again as a character in Makeup Brawl, um, who doesn't last that long. Spoiler. And here we have this night. That's also a practical shot moving through the forest, and then the arrow is put into it. So that isn't CGI background, CGI arrow. It's a CGI arrow with practical background. I always like to use practical when it works, just like I like to use CGI when it works. I don't buy into this belief that practical is always best. It isn't. Um, I don't believe that there's any way that we could create the type of emotion that we're about to see in Baby Groot, for instance, right there, uh, through practical effects. You can't create a, a puppet like that. He's just got too much movement. And the same thing, even more so with Rocket, a more complicated character, a much more complicated character with his eye moves and, you know, the meniscus in his eyes, uh, which we spent a lot of time talking about, the, the, the spotlights in his eyes, the way he looks. You couldn't create that through a puppet. But when something can be created practically, I think it's best to go that route. So if you can create a set practically, you should. So, again, the forest, it's almost all practical here behind them. We had a difficult time lighting the scene because it was uh, it came out a little bright, and so we did a lot of uh, dealing with uh, Steve Scott, who does our DI, our color timing, to try to make it look like it's morning. Um, it's just starting to be morning. So this is a, the scene where the Ravagers start to break up. Uh, mutiny starts to occur. That's my brother, Sean Gunn, who also plays Rocket on set. He plays Kraglin in this movie, and he actually turns in an incredible performance. Um, I find his performance uh, deeply touching, and, and, uh, and he's, he's great in the movie. And Chris Sullivan is taser face, uh, real SOB, and then... So many of these Ravagers are, are friends of mine. There must be some kind of peaceful resolution this. this is really the beginning of the end. We see the really bad Ravagers against the merely bad Ravagers. And then we have the moment here with Nebula. Sort of a Sergio Leone face-off there with the close-ups of the eyes. And she strikes him down. This was a big uh, controversy around uh, the editing offices, whether we should keep in that moment when she spits out the uh, yarrow root. This is one of my favorite shots in the movie, by the way. Uh, beautiful, beautiful shot. Yeah, people thought that maybe we shouldn't have that joke moment for Nebula, that we should make her more cool in that moment. But I was a big proponent of leaving the laugh in. And actually, during our first couple test screenings, we do test screenings in which we show the movie to audiences. And, you know, 
they give us scores on you know whether they like the movie or don't like the movie and all this stuff, and that's somewhat helpful. But what's really helpful about test screenings is you see what people understand, what they don't understand. Here we have George Harrison's My Sweet Lord playing during the revelation of Ego's planet, which we're about to learn is Ego himself. He is a living planet, and this Kurt Russell form is merely an avatar of that planet. Humility. I feel very lucky that George Harrison's estate allowed us to have this song. He is a Beatle, and this is one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, so I think it's uh, we're really lucky. It's a beautiful song. It also speaks to sort of, you know, Hindu mythology a bit, and uh, I think that there's a lot of Hindu mythology, creation myth, in the story of egos coming into being. Um, it used to be a little bit more... Uh, on the nose in earlier drafts, but the sequence uh, coming up was one of the most difficult sequences in the movie. We didn't cut too much from this film in terms of entire sequences. One of the things we cut was a, a fountain scene here where there, you can see in the deleted scenes. And this shot, I think, here was one of the last shots we turned into the movie. I'm what's called a celestial sweetheart. This is where Peter Quill learns that he is part God, and uh, I think this is sort of the change. This is where Peter Quill is in the very first stages of starting to buy into his own ego and that there's something important or better about him than other people. This is really a story of the seduction of Peter Quill. Um, Ego is, you know, as we find out, is a really terrible, terrible guy. And uh, he is seducing his son for the purpose of destroying the universe and taking over everything with his own ego. And, uh, and he is able to be seemingly very warm and loving, but it's questionable about how warm and loving he, he really is. Layer by layer, the very planet you walk on now. But I wanted more. We spent a lot of time working on these shots, which are, uh, I think of them as giant sort of, you know, Hummel figurines, Jeff Koons inspired artwork, uh, porcelain statues. You know, I described it to Chris Townsend, our, our, our visual effects supervisor, as stations of the cross, sort of. We went through a bunch of different visual versions of what this could be, and we weren't happy with them. We did sort of a moving oil painting, and that didn't work. We did these shifting sand sculptures, and, and that didn't work. And, uh, you know, it was difficult um, because we just didn't know um, what would be the best. Here we have one of my favorite Dave Bautista moments in the whole movie, which is uh, him talking about Ego's penis and in a moment, he gives a nice little look to Ego's penis, which I laughed hysterically when he did it, um, which is coming up right there. <laughs> I think that's one of my favorite little moments. All the accompanying junk. I wanted to experience what it truly meant to be human as I set out. This moment here is uh, uh, the ship taking off of Ego's planet. You know, basically, we learn that Ego is a brain that was left out in space, and he sought—that's my niece, Grace, is a statue, which is pretty cool. Um, 
He started out as this brain floating in space, and we learned that he was able, over billions of years, to learn how to control the molecules around him where he built a body, which was the planet. And the planet existed and was completely alone. So through that, he built another type of life, this form that we see now as, as uh, Kurt Russell. And he went off in search of meaning and life. And when he went and he found life, we find it didn't soothe him at all. It wasn't what he wanted. He found out in many ways that he was a predator, um, that he was not who he says he is now, which is a loving father towards Peter Quill. In earlier versions of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I had uh, Star-Lord much more willing to buy into uh, Ego's line of thinking. For instance, the David Hasselhoff scene in The Forest, I had Gamora going, I don't believe any of this, and Quill saying, no, you know, you have to believe me. I found a great jump forward in storytelling came when I shifted that story so that instead of having it be that, you know, Gamora was the cynical one, um, Quill was the cynical one, and she was the one that had to talk him into going. And I thought that served a couple of purposes. Number one, it served the purpose that we see this deepening relationship between Gamora and Peter Quill, that she really cares about him, and they've developed a friendship, which is deeper than just a love relationship, although there's some romance within it as well that they're, you know, she's definitely not comfortable with and he is, you know, very desirous of. So it showed that she had come a certain amount of ways with that. But it also, I think it, you know, it does the opposite of what you think it would do because Peter Quill's very cynical about his father. And, you know, to an audience member, I think they see that he's cynical about his father. And so that is the typical father-son story that you see in movies where they would come together. And you would think that Ego ends up being a good father. And that's what a lot of people think. Um when they're watching the movie early on. Uh, You know, when it used to be that Peter Quill thought that his father was great from the beginning, then you expect the opposite to happen because it's a story and it's going to have pivots and switches and you're not going to know what's going to happen. So I thought that was a big move forward for us. Here we have the Ravagers absolutely brutally beating up uh, Yandu and uh, and Rocket, and we end up having um, a very comedic scene, one of the more comedic scenes in the movie, uh, where there's a play on Taserface's name. Taserface is, of course, a pretty important character in the Guardians of the Galaxy universe in the Marvel comics. He's actually a, a bad guy who's, who's taken rather seriously. And when I first... Uh, got the job for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, I, I kidded around on Facebook that I was going to make Taserface the bad guy. And it was a joke because I thought he was he was goofy. And uh, so that's sort of a nod to, you know, the real Guardians fans of taking Taserface and actually making him, a you know, an important character in the, the Guardians comics. But no one thinks his name is a good name. I think probably the Ravagers have been talking behind his back for many years about what a stupid name Taserface is. They all think it's ridiculous, um, but he doesn't realize it because he is, at the end of the day, an oaf, uh, sort of fool, and uh, and Rocket uh, plays him like a fiddle here. His whole thing is to not get Yandu killed. And here we see a sort of heroism of Rocket as he saves 
Yandu's life, who's about to get killed by all of this nonsense of of of, of appealing to his the crowd of making jokes. And then we see here another side of Rocket where we realize all along that he really just is drawing him in and he doesn't care about him. And I don't even know if Rocket cares that much about dying at a certain point. He is a sad and lonely character, I think, in this movie. We get to see that a little bit more deeply, that he's a deeply injured, damaged uh, soul um, who has never known tenderness, he's never known love, and he's never known affection. And so when he starts to become friends with the Guardians, uh, as he did in Volume 1 and going into this movie, he becomes a real jerk. He becomes an ass. He, he's not able to deal with the intimacy or the tenderness of friendship, and so he pushes them away in a very... A harsh way. And that truly is, in many ways, the heart of this story, even as much as the father-son story, you know, or as much as the Nebula Gamora story, which we're about to hear here in a second. This is a, uh, you know, a scene that ends up being a funny scene between Craglin and Nebula, but really what it is is, is giving us some background on Nebula and who she is and where she comes from. And I think for the first time, we start to say, oh, wow, she is not, maybe, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to her than we thought. And we discover that she was forced to battle her sister throughout her entire life as a young child. And Gamora always won. She was the younger sister. She was the weaker sister. And every time she lost, Thanos would replace a piece of her with some types of, uh, you know, bionics or, you know, machinery so that she became less and less and less human as time went on. And the reason she became less human is because her sister was brutally beating her, basically, seemingly without caring. So that's what's caused this incredible anger in her towards Gamora and towards uh, Thanos, of course, who she also hates more so than Gamora does even. Anyways, happy trails. Here we have the Meredith Quill statue looking quite pretty and simple. And we have uh, probably the most dramatic scene that we've ever shot in a Guardians film. It's pretty much straight drama between Peter Quill and his father, where he confronts him on what a terrible father he is who left him and, uh, you know, left his mother who had brain cancer and sent a pirate to come pick him up and <laughs> deliver him to him for money. And uh, that's, uh, the, you know, the heart of the story. Now, one of the things I think in retrospect watching this scene is that Kurt Russell's playing Ego, and he's he's lying. I don't think that, uh, you know, most of this is true. He has done this to countless children. And I I do think that Ego perhaps had a special love for Meredith Quill. Um, but I also think that he has done this many, many times, and he is absolutely full of it when he talks about this. And he's seducing his son. He's bringing him in because he wants to use his power for his own purposes. And what he's doing is pretty evil. This is uh, uh, Animal Logic, who did the effects in this scene. This is Maxfield uh, Parrish-inspired. I wanted to create this incredibly lush, beautiful world that was also very alien. And uh, Maxfield Parrish is definitely the, the key influence on this scene, as well as many of the 
exterior ego scenes. Here's where Peter Quill learns that he has some power. Um, he's been basically the weakling in the Guardians of the Galaxy, who's just a human being, who's kind of good with guns and, and uh, good with his charm, but he doesn't have any special powers. He's not strong like Drax or Gamora. He doesn't have the incredible uh, intelligence of, of Rocket. He can't stretch like Baby Groot. Um, and uh, he discovers here that he something about himself that he thinks he's special, you know, and even more special than um, than the other characters. And then he receives here the moment between he and his father in a somewhat outlandish way of space catch, <laughs> which he talked about earlier in the movie that he wanted to be off like the other kids playing catch with their dads, and he never got that. And again, I think he goes feeding right into what Peter Quill most wants in his heart, and this is it. Great score by Tyler Bates. You know, wonderful father-son theme. I think that, you know, one of the interesting things we did with the score here is we created this father-son theme that we hear playing throughout when Peter Quill is touched by his father, and uh, and yet it plays out at the end with Yandu. That's when the father-son theme really comes into play because he is the true father and Ego is the fake father. Palm Clementiev, this, we shot this on her first day of shooting, I believe, and she's incredible in this scene. And it, there was a difficult cut in this scene because this is many people's favorite scene in the movie because of the emotion in it. And, um, and when Palm touches Drax, and again, we have a character here who we're getting to know better. He's a, he's a doofus, and uh, he obviously has a difficult time um, relating to other people and talking to other people. He's calling Mantis ugly. Uh, we later learn the reason he, he doesn't like Mantis is because she's, she's too skinny. Um, uh, you know, something we talk a lot about a lot is Drax likes incredibly um, overweight women. And that's what he's attracted to. But here in this moment, we have this guy who's a goofy character. He's awful silly. And we see at the heart of him is something really horrifyingly sad. He's lost the woman he loved. He's lost his daughter. They're dead. And now Mantis has experienced all the emotion. Pom Clementiev, in that moment, had a speech that she had given that was basically saying, you know, I have never experienced love like the love between you and your friends. It, you know, both hurts and soothes the soul. And it was a beautiful speech. But when I cut it out of the moment, I found that the moment was more potent, that we felt everything she was saying just by seeing her face and seeing the two of them, him sitting there stoically and her sitting there completely emotionally. It was more powerful. Drax. What are you talking about? Mantis, can you show us where we'll be staying? Why are there no other beings on this planet? The planet This scene was a, a reshoot, actually. We shot it later um, to sort of give us a little forward momentum um, to explain Gamora's shift between the earlier scene where she is telling Peter Quill that she he should go see uh, his father and in the scene that's coming up pretty soon where she is 
you know, telling Peter Quill that there's something not right about this place, that she doesn't believe it. So we, we shot that uh, later in, in, in post-production to sort of fill in the blanks of what was happening there. Um, because to me, Gamora looked a little bit uh, crazy, which she is, but not that crazy. Hey, tell the other guys we said hi, Taserface. Particularly funny line here of Steve Agee is Jeff the Ravager saying he's going to smash it with the rock. As I was saying earlier, Steve Agee is one of my best friends. He's this part of this little group of guys I have. And if you come to any party at my house, and you're all invited, of course, um, you'll see Steve Agee there, Jimmy Urin, Michael Rooker, Sean Gunn. You know, uh, these are all the guys that are that are my buddies that are that are in the movie. All I needed to do was adhere to the code. We learn a little bit more about Rooker through this scene. This scene was tough because it is a talking scene among a lot of other talking scenes in the movie. And again, this movie is a character-based film and in many ways is an independent film uh, with the spectacle all around it. And there's talking in it. And we're getting to know these characters better. We're getting to learn who they are. But there's a center to the movie where it's a lot of talking. And... I feel like that's something that adds to the film. It makes it different. It makes it beautiful. We have to pay attention for it really to fully come together. And it all makes everything else pay off. But this moment between Rocket and Yondu is important. I think we see a moment earlier where Rocket looks at at, at Yandu and, and we see Rocket as a moment of compassion for him. It actually reminds me a little bit in the first movie when we see Peter Quill looking at Rocket's back and he has a moment of compassion for him and Rocket's back is all scarred and filled with, you know, electronics and, and, and he's, you know, feels for the little creature. And I think that's true here with Rocket. But the difference is, is that the minute Rocket feels that you know, compassion. He, he calls him a drama queen. He starts to be snarky. This uh, shot was difficult because we actually had to build up the entire stage so that we could get inside of the stage to shoot this shot revolving around Baby Groot. And of course, when we're shooting it, there is no Baby Groot there. That's my friend Evan Jones pouring nothing onto nothing uh, that we turn into Baby Groot by Frame Store. This entire scene was, it was a question about how rough they should get with Baby Group because they kick him here, which was definitely going to happen. And then there was some talk about whether we should keep in this curb stomp because it is particularly harsh. But uh, Baby Group's about to brutally murder that guy, so we figured we'd leave it in. This is one of, more, one of the more well-known sequences in the movie. It was one of the scenes that we cut and, and finished very early on because we showed part of it at San Diego Comic-Con in 2016. Baby Groot is probably at his very best here in the whole movie. Uh, they did a remarkable job, Frame Store, with his animation in this sequence. And, and uh, Rocket as well. He looks incredibly real. But this is uh, one of the more straight-up comedic scenes in the movie. But the little details of it are really what work so well to me, this smile by rocket where he's not really smiling there's an easter egg that's a character named uh i don't know what the stuffed animal is but he's a character that i have on my snapchat a lot of stories about him and he's making his appearance that little 
<laughs> that little stuffed animal thing. And people were excited. My Snapchat followers were very excited about his appearance in the movie. It was hard to make space underpants, actually. We didn't yeah. want to make them look too much like Earth underpants, so they had to take the fly out, uh, but yet still look like underpants. So what are space underpants? And I guess that they just don't have a fly. There's an Orloni. That's the name of that animal, and we use them a lot. Those are the things that Peter Quill is kicking at the beginning of the first movie, and they are sort of like... Uh, that sort of, they're very much like inter, inter, interstellar rats. Uh, they show up everywhere, they breed incredibly easy, and they're even on planets like the Southern, which are pretty clean planets. So they're everywhere, and they're definitely on Ravager ships and droves, most likely. That's a desk. This scene was uh, pretty easy to shoot. It's a uh, we shot uh, most of the movie. These movies, these shots aren't moving. But uh, if you see, there's a lot more moving shots in this film than there were in the first film. And part of that is because I allowed myself to take a little bit more time to, to shoot the movie. And part of it is because we used a, uh, a, a rig called a stabili, which is like a combination between a dolly and a steady can. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun rig to move around. I'm talking about this rig in a scene where they're... It doesn't exist. What? No! He thinks you want him to wear it as a hat. This little moment between uh, Rocket and Groot and talking about the hats and why he hates hats is uh, one of my favorites because he doesn't like hats because it, you know, if you look at someone from a distance with a hat, you don't know if it's a hat or a part of his head. I don't know why that makes baby Groot so furious but for some reason that that angers him and there's a lot of things that you know make baby Groot furious have a nice little bit with Sean Gunn proving that maybe he's not as bad as he came out to be and he's always been sort of non-committal about the mutiny so I don't think it's too big of a surprise that he's made a turn get the third quadrant ready for release my direction for Baby Groot in this scene was, you know when you see a baby in a movie who's, like, looking around and he obviously doesn't know he's being filmed? I wanted him to be like that. He's, he's looking around as if he's just a baby being held and not really aware of acting. Here we have Jay and the Americans. Uh, come a little bit closer. I believe it's the oldest song. Maybe it's one of the, one of the two or three oldest songs that we've ever... One of the two oldest songs that we've ever used in a Guardians movie from the 60s. Uh, but I think it fits the scene really well. It was one of the earlier scenes I had music for. The Arrow, this sequence took a long time to finish, but also was you know something that was very carefully planned out and storyboarded, and it's remained almost exactly the same from the moment I first uh, you know drew those shots. Uh, you know, there are a couple scenes in the movie that were drawn more than written, and this is one of them. The other one is the 
battle between Gamora and uh, Nebula, which was drawn before it was written. Uh, here we have the call back to the first movie with the guys walking down the hallway and a little gangster, Baby Groot. These are all incredibly uh, complex shots. These took a long time to shoot. This is all shot mostly with a phantom camera so that we can slow down to incredibly slow speeds and then ramp up and kind of move between those different speeds. That overhead shot there was difficult to get. It's also difficult to get. Here's a variated speed shot where people are falling at a much slower speed than uh, Yandu is walking. That's Richard Christie from the Howard Stern Show who says down there. He's been a friend of mine for a while. This is... Uh, probably the second most complicated shot in the movie after the opening dance sequence and again variated speeds many 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 different layers that we shot of these guys falling and put on top of each other they're they're walking at a much more quick rate but still in slow motion than the people are falling around them and it's incredibly complex shots the it's raining men shots one of the crowd pleasing moments here where baby Groot uh, kills uh, wretch And also, I think, is a little bit, you know... You know, some people, when they first saw Baby Groot, they thought we were going to over cutize him. And, you know, it's hard for him not to be over cutized. He's a living emoji is one of the ways I first described him when we were designing him. And I think that, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's not just cute. There is a sort of harsher side to Baby Groot. My friend Steve Agee. We shot a post credit scene, actually, with Steve Agee there, who gets killed as Jeff the Ravager. And now we actually shot a post credit scene where uh, Mantis and Gamora are talking on the quadrant at the end of the movie, and they hear a screaming somewhere in the distance. And then we cut to where we push in, and Steve Agee is still down there, alive, uh, very wounded, but screaming. Um, you know, and uh, it just ended up not making much sense the callback was too uh, too small of a moment but i would say in the future there's always a possibility that jeff the ravager has survived all of this and is still somewhere on the guardian ship hiding from them I like that moment where Rocket says, uh, you know, you blew up the whole ship and Baby Groot smiles. Now, as you see, uh, Yandu has uh, a huge fin in these sequences now, uh, which is a callback to the comics. You know, it, it's funny. I, I never know what comics fans are going to get upset about. And I took a lot of leeway with these characters, you know, when I started doing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. Drax's personality became completely different than it was in the comics. Groot became an innocent, which he wasn't in the comics. Um, Rocket is somewhat similar, but he's, he's a lot nastier in the movies than he was originally in the comics. And, uh, you know, all of these different elements of these characters I took and, and changed. I changed Nebula, I changed... Of course, Yandu. Yandu became a space pirate and not a sort of, you know, Native American-inspired uh, spiritual warrior that he is in the comics. But people very rarely get upset about any of that stuff. It seemed like the one thing that people got upset about was Yandu's small fin, that they somehow thought it was important that Yandu had a big fin. I, I don't understand 
what comics fans get upset about over something else that they don't get upset about, that something so sort of just physical and small would be the thing they'd get upset about, but they did. And so, in a nod to the fans who I'm appreciative towards, we gave them the big fin. And now we're going to the jump scene where Rocket is making them go to Ego. Now, Ego is incredibly far away, so he's got to go through way more jump points that is healthy. But he was trying to sneak it in before Kraglin and Yandu could do anything about it. But now he's screwed because they're going to go through this incredibly torturous thing where their faces are distorted and they become really goofy. It's sort of a large Marge moment. And I still watch that shot in particular of Yandu with his big open mouth is makes me laugh so hard every time I, I see it. I love that sequence. It's funny. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I think there were two scenes that were the hardest to shoot when people ask me what scenes were the hardest to shoot. One of them was this scene, and uh, the other one is the one coming up with uh, Yandu and Rocket. And the reason is, is because they're very intimate scenes between two characters, and I had to really keep shooting and shooting and pushing and pushing. I think one of the roles of a director is really to push people further than they think they can go. And on this day, I really, especially on the inside stuff, I incredibly exhausted uh, Chris and Zoe. I kept pushing them and making them do it again and again and again and again until I got the performance I wanted. You know, it's it's like when you, you know, have a, a physical trainer, uh, you know, in the gym and they, they push you to do one final rep beyond what you think you can do and then they keep doing that and doing that and doing that. That's one of the things I see as my role as a director. Here we have the steady cam moving around the two and you see it's a little bit of a different movement than, I'm sorry, not the steady cam, the, the stable eye moving around them and it's a little bit of a different movement than a steady cam or a dolly. But that's, I think, my job as a director is to push people beyond where they think they can go. And so when someone's working on a costume design, they keep bringing it back. I'll keep making them do it again and again and again until it's the best it can possibly be. You know, and I think that's what Kevin Feige does with me when I'm making this movie. People ask, what's your collaboration with Kevin Feige like? And I think that he is someone who pushes me beyond where I want to be pushed. And we finish a cut of the movie and it's great. And the audiences love it that watch it in the screen test. And Kevin says to me, well, maybe there's something more you can do here in the middle. And I think, oh, God, I don't want to. It's perfect, and I'm tired, and I don't want to make any changes. And yet I go and I look and I see what I can do differently, and then I, I, I make some changes because at the end of the day, I'll do whatever I can to make these movies as good as they can possibly be. That's the half I'm worried about. Oh, I get it. You're jealous because I'm part God. I love this scene, and I love the way the camera moves in it. I love the way the two actors are in it. I love the fact that it, again, combines, like, humor with real dramatic stakes between the two of them. And you see that, you know, how Gamora is closed off to him, but also how he's getting overtaken with this sort of ego and, and, and pushing her away. And this moment from Zoe is fantastic, you know. Where he says, Don't you understand that? I thought you already had. Yeah, thought you already had. I love that moment. This next sequence is one of my favorites in the movie. Um, you'll notice it has no music, which is unusual for a Guardians of the Galaxy scene um, because we really chock it full of both soundtrack and score. But in this one, I really wanted the, the, the sound to be a big part of it. 
This is what we call the North by Northwest scene because it's definitely inspired by the North by Northwest movie that directed by Alfred Hitchcock in which the crop duster um, attacks Cary Grant. And uh, in this case, the crop duster is an M-ship driven by Nebula and Cary Grant is Zoe Saldana. And after this, it becomes something much uh, more extreme than is in North by Northwest. The chase, the chase keeps going on and... You know, Cary Grant really didn't have a chance against a crop duster, but Gamora, well, she's a different story, and she has a little bit more of a chance against an ship than Cary Grant did, although it's still not really a fair fight. Psychopath. The other thing that inspired me in the sequence was uh, Spy vs. Spy, the comic strip, where the two spies are fighting and one gets one up and then the other one gets one up and the other one gets one up. And you see that the power position shifts a couple of times throughout this fight. I also thought, you know, one of the main relationships in this movie uh, is, uh, in, in both movies, is a relationship between uh, Gamora and Nebula and their, their, their sisterhood and, and how that manifests itself. And this physically combative scene, I think, is pretty accurate representation of what is exists internally in many siblings' uh, lives and in their relationships. This need to one-up one another, this unspoken need to vanquish the other. And uh, I've seen a lot of siblings who don't get along as well as my siblings and I get along, and, and, uh, and this is that relationship. Luckily, uh, Sean and I don't shoot giant guns at each other or try to mow each other down with spaceships because that would be really terrible. And I definitely would never have cast him as Kraglin if that ever happened, if he ever chased me with a spaceship. I also think this scene is very important, as I talked about a little bit earlier, because we learn that this relationship is not what we thought it was. We thought of Nebula as the villain and Gamora as the hero. And in this scene, when Nebula opens up, we learn that I think historically, Gamora is the villain and Nebula was the innocent. I think that they came together as, as little children. They were both adopted by Thanos. Gamora was older and tougher and Nebula looked up to her and she loved her and she wanted the love of her sister and that's really all she wanted. And instead, Gamora just beat the crap out of her uh, regularly. Um, and Gamora was into being a warrior and Gamora was into being strong and she didn't have much feeling for anyone else. And the more sensitive of the two sisters is not Gamora. The more naturally sensitive of the two sisters is Nebula. And it is that sensitivity which has caused her to become so incredibly mean because she needs to, because otherwise it's just, life is just too harsh and too tender and hurts too bad. I think Karen Gillan is just marvelous in this scene. It was incredibly moving to see on set. Um, I really, I really loved her, and she was great as uh, great in the fight sequence as well. And she's a, a marvelous person, and I've, I'm glad to see uh, how much attention she's gotten for this role because she really is great. And I think in the first movie, her role was slight. Karen came in for the first time to meet with me about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy on the first movie, and. I showed her the designs of Nebula, and I said, listen, you know, it's not that big of a role. She only has a few lines and a fight scene in this movie. It's not a, not a huge role. But my plan is 
that Nebula becomes a guardian of the galaxy, and that's where this is going. And she isn't that big now, but she's going to become a guardian of the galaxy. And a lot of times people tell you this, and it's not true, or, 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 or I'll tell people things like that, or I hope that's where things are going, and things don't work out exactly like you hope they do because the story is always the master of itself. And when you're writing a story, you have to really listen to the truth of what the story is and where it goes. And sometimes it doesn't go where you expect. It goes in someplace new and more magical and more interesting. Right, but in this case, I was very happy that Nebula ended up being such an important part of Guardians of the Galaxy. And I think now is as important a part of the Guardians of the Galaxy as Gamora is. Listening to this song, you know, uh, Brandy, by Looking Glass, a favorite of your mom's. Brandy uh, by uh, the band Looking Glass has been one of my favorite songs for a long time. And it's embarrassing and, and maybe not regular for a director's commentary, but it's very true that when I was a young man, I was in love with this woman. And there was something about it that maybe wasn't working out right. I was still living in St. Louis. I was going to St. Louis University. And I spent, you know, part of the night with this woman. And then I went to drive home. And when I got into my car, Oldies Radio was on. I like to listen to Oldies Radio because radio in St. Louis at the time was not so great. And the song Brandy came on. And I heard the lyrics for the first time. I heard what it was about. And I was struck with this incredible sadness because I related to the songs. I related to the story of the sailor. And yes, I don't know if it's sappy or not, but I absolutely related to the song. And it spoke to my own life that I was not going to stay in St. Louis. I was not going to stay with this woman. My love was the sea and I needed to go out and I needed to follow my dreams and do what I needed to do uh, within the world of entertainment. And I always related to that song, and it's always sort of haunted me in that same in the same way um, that I, I, for some reason, am not allowed the pleasures that other people have because I've committed my life to a life of filmmaking. And I'm trying to combat some of that in my life. I'm trying to be a person who allows, you know, love into my life that allows friendship and, and, and that I'm able to have fun sometimes and not everything about my life is work and not everything about my life is just making movies. Um, and it's a personal struggle for me. So I relate to that song and I relate to that uh, conversation between, uh, you know, Peter Quill and his father, not in terms of being a god, but just, <laughs> just in terms of being someone who has a calling. And uh, I do believe I have a calling. I, I, I believe that that very much. And um, it's important to me and it's important to, you know, why I do what I do. I'm sorry, but I like a woman with some meat on her bones. What? I tried to let you down easily by telling you I found you disgusting. No, that's not what I... What are you doing? Oh, I'm imagining being with you physically. Drugs, that's not... I don't like you like that. I don't even know... I love this scene uh, between uh, Dave and... Uh, and, and Mantis. That, that moment where... Uh, <laughs> where Dave says, no need to get personal. That was not in the script. That was something I thought of while Dave was doing his, his vomiting thing. And, you know, he, uh, he, you know, he turned to her and, and, uh, <laughs> and I, I thought of it when I was sitting at the monitor and I went in and told him to say that. And it made me laugh pretty hard when he did. 
I think that that was a scene that we had that we deleted from the last movie where Batista was looking at this incredibly beautiful actress and talking about how she made him want to vomit. Um, and uh, I thought it was funny, but it didn't belong in the movie, and so we cut it. But I always liked the joke, and I liked the through line of, of, of Batista, uh, or Drax, sorry, I call them often by their actor names, of Drax um, being disgusted by beautiful women, and that's something that he doesn't find appealing. Disappointing. And that is when I came. You know, this is probably one of the darker moments in any Marvel movie ever. You know, it's a moment in which we really see, you know, this whole sequence, uh, how incredibly dark Ego is. And we learn that what Ego has been doing is that he has been looking for a way to take over the universe. And that is his meaning. That is his purpose. His purpose is to take over everything in the same way our egos can take over everything around us and destroy everything. That's what the story is about. It's very simply about ego. It's not that complicated. And here we have, you know, Peter Quill looking into that moment in a wonderful acting moment by Chris Pratt. I just think he's great in that shot. And the, the uh, women uh, discover the skulls. And these are all the skulls of uh, Ego's children. And if you look closely in those skulls, you'll see some pretty, pretty cool Easter eggs. <laughs> Another great moment with Michael Rooker as Yandu. You know, I was talking earlier. Oh, here we have the uh, Stan Lee cameo. Um, Stan Lee is with the Watchers. A great deal has been made of this moment because it doesn't mean that Stan Lee is a Watcher. I, you know, is he, he doesn't look like a Watcher. He looks like he's reporting to the Watchers. So, you know, who knows what Stan Lee is? And there's a great vomit moment by Baby Groot. You know, I know my roots and B-movies, and I'm still not uh, unwilling to resort to uh, the lowest common denominator, which is a baby tree vomiting. I talked earlier about the hardest scenes in the movie to shoot, and this was the other one, um, I think, uh, where I, I really had to push Michael Rooker, uh, who's a close friend of mine, um, a very, very close friend of mine, and uh, I had to push him hard to do this scene, and uh, I made him go further and further and further, and I think it ends up being one of the best scenes in the movie. This scene was also difficult because, as you see in some of these shots, we have Craglin in the background and Rocket in the foreground, and as you know, Sean Gunn plays both of those roles on set, so I had to shoot the scene first with Sean acting it out and then go put him as Craglin in the background, but because we don't have time, normally when Sean comes on set, he's wearing this gray suit, and uh, that's his Rocket uniform. Um, when he's playing Rocket, and then he's dressed as Craglin when he's playing Craglin. But in this day, we didn't have time to change between those two outfits. So he would have to crouch his Rocket on the floor and then go play Craglin in the background. So during the first cut of this sequence, it's changing back and forth <laughs> between close-up of Craglin acting like Rocket to Craglin watching acting like Craglin, and it was incredibly confusing. Here we see Pom Clementiev as Mantis putting her... Uh, the, the power of fear into Zoe Saldana, who is um, taken aback by this and, and screwed up. And here we, we learn of, of Ego's plan 
and, uh, you know, basically of his ego, of him, ego, taking over everything. And, and uh, Peter Quill is enamored of this moment. This is sort of a Cronenbergian moment where he pulls out a chunk of himself and shoves it into the ground and watches it spread through the planet like a disease. And spread, covering all that I love this piece of score by Tyler Bates. I think it's really amazing. It harkens back a little bit to some of the post-rock stuff we did with uh, the movie Super that we worked on. She already told me everything. I only had one problem. And here we learn uh, the truth about the children, that it is uh, indeed that he has simply been procreating with women all over the universe, uh, or characters all over the universe, and putting uh, his, his progeny into them. Out of all my labors, Again, I think the statues here that we see are some of my favorite statues of, of Kurt Russell sitting in that woman's arms with the horns, horns for eyes and all those different monsters. And there's a, something that looks almost exactly like a turtle up there. So it means Kurt Russell uh, made love to a turtle and created a turtle baby. And there's a couple of other little Easter eggs in there. But I think those statues are there for Quill's for the purpose of Quill. Everything he does is for the purpose of Quill. And I think in reality, um, probably Ego has different forms he takes besides Kurt Russell, and that when he goes to the turtle planet, he's actually a turtle. And he, when he goes to the woman with horns for eyes planet, he's actually a man with horns for eyes. That he changes his shape uh, according to what planet he is, and he you know, changes his uh, physiology so that he's able to procreate with each of those different species. You're right. We're family. We leave no one behind. Here we have what I think of as the Vin Diesel moment. We're not uh, friends, we're family. But, of course, we undercut it with what he says to Nebula and about, except maybe her. I am truly not alone! I think that there is a, a, a sort of... something in Ego where he himself even is has some he part of him wants a friend That's which is what he wants out of peter quill but part of him just wants a tool so that he can take over the universe i don't think the guy is without wanting company he wants company and that's what happens in these felony sequences is he's hoping he's hoping that he will both help him to take over the universe and he will have company. And here we have the most, this is the moment in theaters at least when people ah out loud where Ego admits that he is the one who put the brain tumor into Peter's mother. And the reason for doing this, I think, is because he did care about her and he didn't want the distraction and he was committed to his plan. I think he also did it to cover his tracks. I think that's the thing that breaks through. It's always interesting, you know, because we talk about all these other things that Ego is going to do. He's going to kill everyone in the universe. He's going to kill all of his friends. And, you know, Quill is not, he's, he's torn by it, but he doesn't totally go against it until the mother thing comes up. And here we have one of my favorite moments, of course, and one of the audience's favorite moments, where Zardu Hasselfrau, a.k.a. David Hasselhoff, makes an appearance. And we discover here that what Ego has been doing is everything he has done, everything he has crafted, has been simply 
to pull in Peter Quill. He tried to take on the right form. He liked to do, try to do what he could do to take in Peter Quill. He is simply a being of light. He's a giant brain, and he doesn't have any sort of real compassion, I don't think. I think that ego, and there used to be more of this early on in the scripts, but you cut out too much explanation. I think ego experiences emotions. He experiences love. He experiences compassion. He experiences sadness and, and all sorts of things. But he doesn't ever let those things affect his primary purpose, his primary choice. And I, I think in me thinking about that, I actually have some admiration for Ego because he doesn't let his emotions stop him from doing what he thinks of as, I don't know, the, the right thing. And I think that that makes him an interesting character. He doesn't, he has these emotions, but he makes another choice and he does it here. We see it in that moment where he's holding the Walkman, he's hearing Brandy. Brandy is bringing back to him the memories of the love that he had for Meredith Quill, that he actually had, that he actually felt, but yet he overcame it and pushed it aside for the sake of taking over the universe, his noble calling in his own mind. Here we have DQ. You know, I, I got some messages. You know, oh, I don't know if I, you know, want like the pl product placement with, with Dairy Queen. And I'm like, it's not product placement. That was incredibly important to me. Dairy Queen was a place from my childhood where I loved to go and eat ice cream cones. And having something that brought up those childhood memories for me at the beginning of the movie that so perfectly spoke to the 1980s for me. And at the same time, had 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 a change, but still retained that iconic shape of the DQ uh, over time so that we could go back to it today and see that it was many years later. In one moment uh, was what was so important about Dairy Queen for me and why it you know, was in the, the script from the beginning and why it was a part of the script and not something that we went out and sought uh, whoever was the highest bidder as a, as a product placement. It was about the story. And that's always true about these movies. I will never make product placement more important than, than the story I'm telling, ever. That is only an extension of his true self. We'll be back soon. What's Murphette doing here? Whatever I need to do to get a damn ride home. She tried to murder me! I saved you, you stupid fox. He's not a fox. I'm Groot. Here, uh, baby Groot. <laughs> we learned that somehow he's able to correct Rocket on his pronunciation of uh, Raboon versus Raccoon by simply saying, I am Groot. How he does that, I don't know. I believe that there's some sort of, over time, I think that you start to understand I am Groot. I think there's some sort of psychic connection with it. Something in which you understand what he's saying over time. And something that not too many people have talked about in the movie is, now it's getting way ahead of myself here, but in the post credit scene, we have Peter Quill talking to a tween Groot, adolescent Groot, and he's understanding everything he's saying. So obviously over the past five years, he now understands, you know, because that was, you know, I think that's like four or five years in the future from now, um, that he understands what Groot is saying. There we have, uh, I love this freaky father, Kurt Russell, CGI. And I also love this next shot of the sunlight coming down. 
the thing coming down over the, the sunset. We should be going up! We can't. Ego wants to and here we see the Guardians of the Galaxy come back together again, starting to work together, overcoming their differences, and doing what they do best, which is quill driving, rocket manning the guns, um, you know, Michael Rooker doing whatever he's doing as Yondu, working on, on wires. Rooker, the, the two people who are very, very good on set of being in a situation and just pretending like they're doing something are Zoe Saldana and Michael Rooker. When they're sitting at a, uh, uh, you know, a council, they're constantly just working on this whatever stuff they're doing, and they're really good at it. About the planets and the buildings and all the animals on the planets and the people. The Krabby Puppy's so cute, he makes me want to die. Soup, soup. Here we have Sean singing Soup Soup to Wham Bam. Wham Bam is an interesting song because I had never heard it uh, before I put it in the movie. stuff with them working together and going through that thing and using those lasers to you know pinpoint every moment and it shows you how good they are at what they're doing so could you a little here we have Rooker sort of laughing at his ability to make a ball this great superpower he has which is to make a ball and he's about to tell him that he doesn't use the arrow you know he doesn't you know doesn't think it. He doesn't think it. He, he feels it with his heart. It's something he goes from his gut when he flies that arrow. He's not thinking. In fact, I think it's about clearing his head of space when he flies that arrow in the same way a baseball player doesn't think about hitting the ball as it comes towards him. Bear. This world is score. based a lot on the Mandelbrot art of a guy by the name of Hal Tenney. When we were trying to design what the interior of Ego's planet looked like, we brought up a lot of different references. We tried a lot of different things with Scott Chambliss, our wonderful production designer. And one of the main things I wanted in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was a very pulp fiction feel. I, I, I hearken back a lot to Flash Gordon, uh, the 1980s version especially, but also the Walt you know, Williamson art. Um, from the comics. Um, I hearken back a lot to uh, the old Amazing Stories uh, pulp uh, magazine covers. Um, I brought up a lot of these references for our whole team to look at to create what the look of this movie was. I wanted something brashly colorful. It's 50s and 60s science fiction inspired. But for the interior of the planet, we needed something completely unique, something that we hadn't seen before. And so we came up with this sort of 
we found this Mandel, Mandelbrot art online, which is, you know, an organic, mathematical way of, of things uh, growing. And the best person, the one who I found the most art by, is this guy, Hal Tenney. And he was, his stuff is truly beautiful. And so we hired Hal Tenney to come in and help us design the interior of this planet. And he did a great job for us, and we're very grateful to him. In the same way, on the first movie, we used an artist by the name of Chris Foss, who was a, a famous science fiction artist who became to prominence in the 1970s and did work on Blade Runner and Aliens and uh, Jodorowsky's Unmade Dune and, uh, um, and also a lot of novel covers and things like that. And He really helped to strike the center of what the visual look of Guardians of the Galaxy is. One of the first things I do before I ever write the screenplay is I write a treatment. My treatment is just the story of Guardians of the Galaxy, but intermingled in that is what the look is like of Guardians of the Galaxy. And uh, I have a lot of photographs in that. So that treatment's about 70 pages long. About 10 or 15 pages of that are photographs or paintings or pieces of art or movie references or other things that show us where we're going as a movie, not only in terms of the words and the story, but in terms of the visuals and what that's going to be like. It's an incredibly important part of these movies. And I think one of the, the, the reasons people have loved re-watching these, this, these movies, and this movie in particular, again and again, is because of the, the, the visuals are, are something that can carry you so far, and there's so many little things you can see in there. I also think people like to watch them because you can watch this movie for Baby Groot, and you just watch what Baby Groot does throughout the movie because he's doing so many crazy things in the background. I didn't point it out, but much earlier in the movie when you know Gamora is walking by a spaceship when they're talking about trash pandas, Baby Groot looks up at Gamora and he waves at her and he's very small in the background and it isn't something that I noticed until I was working on the color timing of the movie. I didn't even know because the point of the shot was Rocket. Rocket was saying something in that shot and I was always looking at Rocket. Does Rocket look good? Is he great? Is he, you know, working? Is he moving right? And uh, I didn't even notice that they had a little Baby Groot just sort of casually waving at Gamora as she goes by. I, I love the relationships Baby Groot has with the different characters in this, the Guardians. And I think it's important as well. I think that you see that, you know, Baby Groot has a father-son relationship with, with Rocket, and Rocket is, is his father in many ways, but he also is not always the most understanding. But he is pretty loving, actually, and he takes care of him, and he's nice, but in this situation, he's upset. I think a lot of his anger is more geared towards Peter Quill for even coming up with this idea of Baby Groot saving all of them by pressing the bomb. It's probably the most famous scene in the movie is this classic comedic moment of trying to pick the right button and baby Groot being a baby basically who can't tell at all what the right button is and the, the scotch tape moment with, with Drax you know but back to the, the you know baby Groot's relationship with the different characters I think we see that he has his best relationship is probably with Gamora that's who he really loves and he waves at her all the time and she's very sweet to him and she's kind you know, she gets all of the kindness that the other characters don't get. Um, and she's very loving and maternal towards him. And so his best relationship is with her and with Rocket. And then you have Drax, who he obviously has some sort of, seemingly some sort of hatred for, that he's constantly 
punching Drax and getting angry at Drax and beating up Drax. He beats him up numerous times throughout the movie for seemingly no reason whatsoever. And, and Drax is mean to him. He calls him a uh, you know dumber, smaller Groot, and he gets mad when he dances, and he doesn't like him. Yet at the end of the movie, what we see is we see that the first person he goes to when he wants to sleep and when he needs comfort is Drax. Your deaths are not without most. They will serve as a warning to all of those tempted with betraying us. Don't screw with Here we have the end of Aisha, basically, although it is not the last we will see of her, most likely. Um, but they do this thing between the two of them. I, I, you know, one of the, the sad things about this movie is I really think that Nebula and Yondu would become uh, pretty close friends, and it's, it's a shame. Let's see, we think we see the hints of it here. And then I, I think of this stuff as very 70s album cover type art with those rays coming out. There's something very iconic about it. The colors here and the darks and the brights in this scene are very cool. And then we have the relationship between Peter Quill and Baby Groot, and Peter Quill ignores Baby Groot throughout almost the entire movie. There's almost no relationship between Peter Quill and Baby Groot until the end. Now, there's one moment in the movie uh, that's probably been more... <laughs> one quote in the movie that's been more quoted than any other, and it is basically this moment where Michael Rooker says, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great moment. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I think it's a funny moment. I, I, I actually went back and forth a lot about putting the moment in the script or not, but in the end decided to, to put it in there. And I'm, I'm really happy I did because it was the biggest quote from the movie. This shot was incredibly hard. We used a thing called a spider cam which goes around, you, you, you select all the points ahead of time of where it goes on these wires and it goes in all these crazy places and it's a, it's a beautiful rig. And these are some just gigantic shots. Overall on uh, Ego's planet there are over half a trillion polygons. It's incredibly complicated sets, uh, you know, virtual sets. And a lot of this, you know, this is stuff. I was talking earlier about how, you know, anytime you can shoot something practically, you should. But a lot of this stuff can't, this can't, that you can't shoot that stuff practically because it's so far away and so huge. Now, this ground is all practical, you know. There's a lot of practical ground, a lot of practical set pieces behind them. But most of it, of course, is CGI. It's done by the company Weta. Um, Peter Jackson, uh, you know, uh, company, and it's, uh, it's, they did marvelous, marvelous, incredible groundbreaking work uh, for this movie, and uh, I, I hope they really get the acknowledgement for it that they deserve, because it's completely unique, and uh, it's lovely, and, and I just think they did an amazing job. And here we start to really experience ego as a living planet. I, I think one of the difficult things about selling this movie to the public was that we had so many surprises in it, starting at the, you know, a third of the way through the film, that we didn't want to give away the surprises. 
So at the end of the day, we were selling a film where we weren't telling them who the central protagonist was, which was Ego. We didn't want to spoil the fact that Ego was the bad guy. Uh, and not only that, we weren't able to tell them that, hey, the Guardians fight a living planet in this movie, which is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty cool thing to be able to do. And some of the stuff with, with Yandu is just the best. I just love these shots. Um, incredibly Pulp Fiction, amazing and overwhelming and really like an amazing stories cover come to life. And here we see Rocket using his technology. He's got a, some little bombs and a shield, and he's always got something he pulls out of his, his uh, utility belt there. But it goes wrong as it often does for Guardians. So yeah, I think that that was you know, one of the difficult things with this movie, was we couldn't tell people about the coolest part of it, just fighting a planet. And... Um, and it has a bit of a slower pace at the beginning and then gets more and more amped up as we go on. And I think that, you know, one of the cool things about it is this is a protagonist. That, that isn't just a guy who's, you know, trying to take over the universe that we have no emotional connection to. This is Peter Quill's father. And the fact that he's trying to take over the universe is really secondary to the fact that he's killed Peter Quill's mother, that he's going to kill his friends, and that he doesn't, you know, he's, he's betrayed him in a big way. So the central part of the story is an emotional one, even with all of the action. The action is, is all, you know, in service of that central emotional story between the characters. And that is why I, I think that, you know, Marvel Studios has been so great for me in allowing me to tell a story like this and taking a chance and, and really being happy with it through the whole process. I have to say, this was by far the most fluid movie I've ever worked on because it stayed basically the same from that first treatment I wrote all the way through the end. All of the difficult stuff was just this gigantic part of it and getting it right and making it look right and making it look cool and getting the shots that we wanted to get and getting the performances that we wanted to get. But the actual creative process was so easy, really. I like that Kraglin moment we just saw too where Kraglin sort of becomes a hero and saves Drax. It's pretty cool. And a little hint of, I think, what's to come for the character of Kraglin. shots were very hard. Those shots were also incredibly ridiculous looking because basically what we, oh, I love that shot with Baby Groot crying. It's so sad. We have uh, Nebula and Gamora were holding on to the sides of this cliff that we actually built that had a glow inside of it so that we could reflect the light off of them. And as they are holding on, as Zoe Saldana and, and Karen Gillan are holding on to the side of the cliff, we have two guys in blue outfits who are rubbing their hands over their faces and hairs and backs and sides. That's my mom and my dad. 
Jim and Lee, there's my brother Patrick, my sister-in-law Laura. Basically, I kill my entire family in this, this, this sequence. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a second. Here we go back to Xandar. We see that. We, uh, this is where we cut most of the stuff out of the movie that we cut. We cut some different players in there. Why are you destroying our Anyway, like I was saying, we, have, uh, we had these two guys in blue suits rubbing their hands over Zoe and Karen as they're kind of moaning, and it looked incredibly uh, strange, incredibly strange. That's my nephew Griffin, my brother-in-law Alec. These are all the cameos of all, all my people in my family, my, my niece Jaden, my nephews Declan and Mason, and uh, I, I murder them all. I murder every single one of them. This moment here was originally going to be a huge moment where the walls fall down and we reveal statues of these moments from Quill's life. Now, I don't know if that would have worked or not, but the truth is, is I wanted things to get very quiet for just a moment because I think he's going internal and I think it's important. And I said, God, maybe not everything needs to be huge all the time. Maybe we can just shoot these small moments from his life and have those be what drives him those that little bit of love the you know kurt russell asked him what other meaning does life have to offer and peter quill's answer is resounding it's it's the love he has for the, the people in his life and that includes yandu who we thought of as a bad guy for the first movie and i think that's important and then we have this incredibly triumphant moment where he has superpowers. I mean, he is, you know, an incredibly powerful being, and it's driven by something other than the ego and the smallness that drives ego with his powers. Here we have Grandpa Quill. There we go. Little Grandpa Quill cameo. Greg Henry is Grandpa Quill, who's driving a van. We actually shot a scene where Grandpa Quill saves that woman from the oncoming wave and they get into a car, but uh, it, it just was... We, we found that audiences were much more interested in what's going on with the characters and the threat to the characters than anything else. What a beautiful shot there of so incredibly pulp science fiction with Baby Groot and this giant brain that's pulsing different colors. It's just incredible work by, by the guys. You know, we had a lot of different versions of what Ego looked like at his core. Um, he was this sort of zygote sperm-looking thing for a long time. And eventually, I woke up one day and I said, I think we should just make him a brain. I think it's the most cool, crazy science fiction idea. And it also explains what he is, that that's his brain. That's his, his center. Incredibly dramatic moments here with Zoe and Karen climbing up the side of the cliff. And then one, in, this is a 100% digital shot. This is, uh, we shot those guys flying around a lot, but this shot is 100% uh, what a digital creating it. And here we have one of my favorite scenes. And this scene is um, two of my favorite characters. And of course, Michael Rooker is, as I said, a close friend of mine. We've done, I think, five movies together. Web series, a video game, two reality shows. Andy stops by my house and eats my food all the time. And uh, this was him saying goodbye. And I, I had a, I had a hard time shooting this scene, and I had a hard time dealing with this plot point in particular. And being, you know, very honest with you, uh, I didn't want to kill Yandu in this movie. I just didn't want to do it, and. 
the reason was was because I've had Michael Rooker in every movie I've ever made, and I didn't want to make a movie without him. I love him. I've come to rely upon him. I think he's one of the best actors I've I've ever known, and he's a, an amazing, amazing guy and a kindred soul and a brother. And I did not want to have to make a movie without him. So as I'm writing the plot and the story, I think originally there was a moment in which Yandu sacrificed himself but then was saved. But it created something that felt to me very false, very not true. And at the end of the day, my ultimate commitment is to the story. It's always to the story and having the story be as true as it possibly can. And this was a story about a father and his ultimate love for his son. And that father is Yandu, and that son is Peter Quill. And he doesn't look like a father. And he certainly wasn't a perfect father, but he was a father. And that's what this movie is about. When I attended the premiere, I, I spoke to the audience, and my parents were in the crowd, and I, I made them stand up, and I said, I want everybody here to know that these two movies are, are dedicated to my mother and my father. You know, the first movie is really about a mother and her love for her son. And it ends with um, a tape that she gives him and speaks to him from beyond. And this story is about a father and his love for his son. And it's not about Meredith Quill and Ego. It's about Meredith Quill and Yandu Udanta. And those are the mother and father. And those are the true fathers. And I think that that's, you know, something and one of the reasons why so many people who have, uh, you know, been adopted or, or come from different types of families uh, that aren't considered your normal family have written to me about this movie and how much it means to them. And, I, and, I, and I'm glad that could be the case because it really is something that is about those people who love us. But it is also about biological fathers who we have who are imperfect. My own father is imperfect. But he loved me, and I always knew that. And that's the most important thing for me. And the same thing is true of my mother. Anyway. Now we're about to see uh, everything go really wrong for Ego. And Baby Groot did his job. He destroyed this wonderful Haltenny artwork. If you kill me, you'll be just like everybody else. And we see what it's about for Peter Quill. And he says to him, what's so wrong with just being a normal person? And this is a sacrifice for Peter Quill as well. He's sacrificing this power that he has, and he's giving it up. He's giving up immortality for the sake of those that he loves. And so there's a big sacrificial theme here, both in this movie and the last movie. Groot sacrificed himself for his friends. Peter Quill sacrifices immortality for the, his friends. Yandu Danta sacrifices his life for his son, and it's all about the deepest kind of love that can possibly exist. And, uh, you know, people call this a comedy, but to me it is very funny, and I know that it's funny, but it really is mostly about that. You may have been your father, boy. This scene was uh, one of the hardest scenes I've ever had to shoot, uh, simply because it was, they're hanging from wires this whole time and having to turn in these incredibly intense performances. Yandu's smile in this next shot is just one of my favorite things that 
that my that smile, Yandu's smile, that's one of my favorite things that Michael Rooker has ever done on film. There's something so incredibly sweet about it. And you don't see him smile very much in film unless he's laughing at someone for something terrible. And uh, they really, really gave their all, Chris Pratt and Michael Rooker, in this moment. And you'll see some acting from Chris Pratt that I think is the finest acting he's ever done on film. And it's very, very intense. And then to think that he's doing this acting while he's hanging from wires in the middle of a soundstage. And we did have earbuds in, and we did listen to this wonderful score by Tyler Bates that was playing during this whole time. So that score really is what drives this scene. This scene is completely intertwined with that score. And here we have this wonderful moment where he touches his son, and he gives him the love. I'm getting uh, sad. And then Chris really just losing it. His arms outstretched and surrender. And that's uh, that's tough for me because I do, I love the character of Yandu, but more importantly, I love the I love Michael Rooker in real life, and it was a very, 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 very hard choice to make, and I just did it because I believe in the truth of these movies. Here we have. Uh, what I think of is the Hass the Hasselhoff funeral speech, uh, which is one of those you know great moments as a writer where I didn't know what Chris Pratt was going to say during the speech, uh, you know. But I woke up one night in the middle of the night, and I rolled over and I had this Hasselhoff speech in my head. I never thought about it whatsoever beforehand, and I wrote it down in my like phone. And that's what this speech is. That's like that exact same speech. Not a word has changed since that night I wrote it down in my phone. And that is, uh, you know, that's what the scene is. And I'm going to be honest about this, too, because we have this this wonderful, this wonderful, wonderful performance by Chris Pratt in this scene. You know, again, one of the best performances he's ever done. But let me tell you, we shot the scene twice. I shot Chris's speech twice. The first time I shot it, I had him give the speech in a little bit more of like a guy giving the speech at a funeral. And that night I went home and I was like, I don't think Quill is as ravaged as he would have been by losing his father. I think he needs to be more messed up. And I went back to Chris and I said, I think we have to reshoot the scene. And we reshot him giving the speech. And I'm really, really glad we did that. I think it's also nice to see how all of this, you know, seems to be about Peter Quill, but it's not. It's about Gamora. And at the end, she hears what he says about that thing you wanted is right by your side all along. And she thinks of her sister and what her sister said to her. And she goes out and she gives a speech. And if you ask me, what's my very, very, very favorite thing in the entire movie? Um, it might just be this moment coming up in a second, which was something that Karen Gillan did when we were rehearsing that I did not ask her to do. And then I wrote into the script after we rehearsed it. And when she did it, I started crying in the middle of rehearsal. And it's this little moment where they hug and we have this wide shot. And that was always planned to be that way. It was already storyboarded. And then she reaches her hand over in just a moment. You will always be my sister. After Gamora says that to her. And Nebula reaches her hand and she hugs her sister back for just a moment. 
I still get choked up over this stuff. <laughs> so it's like that. I just love that moment. That's my maybe my favorite thing in the entire movie. I think in the first movie, my favorite thing was Drax petting Rocket. And I think that's a very similar moment. You know, this is this character who's completely damaged, probably even more damaged than Rocket, if that's possible. And she hugs her sister back for just that split second of of sisterhood, of siblinghood. Kevin found this for you in a junker shop. Said he'd come back to the fold someday. What is it? It's called a Zune. It's what everybody's listening to on Earth nowadays. It's got three. You know, people have asked me again, you know, hey, is the Zune product placement? And I have to tell them, no, it's absolutely not product placement. Uh, we simply have Wait. the Zune in there because I think it's funny that I think an iPod would just be too easy to guess. And uh, having somehow Craglin, you know, through a game of interstellar telephone, Craglin thinks a Zune is the most popular device for listening to music on the Earth is, is a wonderful little moment. And there's the fact that Peter Quill thinks 300 songs is just a, an amazing amount of songs that a device can, can have on it. I also don't think Peter Quill planned on giving that arrow to, to Craglin. I think he felt like he had to give it to him because he gave him the Zune. <laughs> he was going to keep that arrow for himself. And he's like, oh. And I think this, I wanted to come back to this moment because we talked about it earlier that Peter Quill uh, has never paid any attention to Groot, this whole movie. He really has barely ever paid any attention to him. He's a terrible, terrible father. He brings him in the battle. He does all this stuff. And I think that's what this moment is about. I think that this moment is really about in the first movie. We see Peter Quill listening to the tape from his mom, and he has this private moment about him, about his mother's love for him, and how she loves him, and he, he experiences that. In this movie, he thinks he's going to have that same moment with Yandu. But instead, what he has is a moment where he feels love for his son, who's baby Groot. And that's what the moment is about. It's not about a selfish moment. It's a moment about passing it on, about his love for someone else. And that's the first time he's tender with him. And he's as bad of a father as, as Yandu was. I sent word to Yandu's old Ravager buddies and told them what he did. It's a Ravager funeral. And of course, the fireworks ending, the Viking funeral, the Ravagers giving uh, their respect to a fallen comrade. And in this, this is another one of my favorite moments in the movie is Sean Gunn's reaction to this. And in some ways, this is inspired by Christopher Lloyd at the end of one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and their reaction to this. It's always one of my favorite endings, the ending to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I'll say what... what <laughs> this line by Sylvester Stallone, my... my uh, <laughs> he said, how do you want that uh, delivered, James? And I said, uh, I said, did you see the movie Babe? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so we all know Sylvester Stallone saw Babe. And I said, you know where he says, uh, that'll do, pig, at the end? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, that's how... That's that's this is you saying that'll do, pig. That's what you that's what you're saying to Yandu. You're you're accepting him. And he's like, got it. And he went out there and he killed it. He just nailed it. And he's a great guy to work with. 
And he stole batteries he didn't need. Yeah, I love this moment with uh, Rocket talking about the batteries. And sort of not wanting. And again, talking about this moment, as I talked about earlier, at the end of the day, who's the one that baby Groot goes to for comfort? And it's Drax. And you see that their sort of feisty relationship throughout the whole movie is really, you know, just much, much different than that. It's not, it's not that at all. The reason they fight is because they love each other the most. And <laughs> Drax loves baby Groot. Baby Groot loves Drax. And then Gamora admitting her love for Peter Quill. And we could have done this with a kiss. We almost did. But I thought at the end, their love is based on friendship. It's based on something much deeper than just the romantic and lustful moment of a kiss. And it's, uh, it's, it deserves something different than that. And that's what that moment is. And so are you. On the inside. And a beautiful shot. And I was very happy that uh, this is a moment where Rocket sees the hints of something beyond. He's a he's a character who doesn't believe in any purpose for himself or that he was made for any reason other than the cruelty of, of, of other beings. And I think in that moment there, Rocket sees the hints of something beyond, something more than what he expects out of this life. And that's why we end on that shot. Except for this, of course, which is Craglin gaining his superpowers. He's very bad at the arrow. I don't think he's learned how to whistle with either his brain or his heart. And, uh, and of course, goes terribly awry. People ask you, you know, do you, do you write the post credit scenes into the script? Or do you, you know, do them afterwards? The answer is I wrote this one into the script. I wrote the Elizabeth Debicki, uh, Adam Warlock one into the script. And I wrote the adolescent Groot one into the script. The one with Sylvester Stallone and the other Ravagers uh, is something I came up with after shooting. And I was, you know, sitting around one day and I go, oh, my God, that would be awesome to be able to see this other crazier, even darker, weirder, expendables version of the Guardians of the Galaxy and, and have them have their moment and perhaps have that lead to something else in the, the MCU. Um, which we'll see in just a moment. If you look closely, my father is credited as Weird Old Man, and my mother is credited as Weird Old Man's Mistress, which she loves being referred to as Mistress. They didn't know that they had, was their credits they were going to get. You know, it's a shame that it took the tragedy of losing Yandu to bring us all together again, but I think he'd be proud knowing that we're back as a team. Amen. Help. That's Krugar, Charlie 27, Martinix, Mainframe, and uh, Michelle Yeoh, Ving Rhames. Ving Rhames, who I worked with on Dawn of the Dead, the screenplay I wrote. Michelle Yeoh is, of course, a, a famous uh, Hong Kong movie star. I'm a huge fan of hers, and she just happens to be one of the greatest people I've met. And she has uh, played uh, uh, in one of, a movie that was a big inspiration to me early on, The Heroic Trio. In fact, Hong Kong movies in general are a huge influence to me. They were able to meld genres in a way that wasn't done before them. They had the best action that had ever been done on screen, especially in the 1990s during the golden period of, of Hong Kong movies. And they influenced me incredibly, as well as many of those directors. 
It's always great to be at a Marvel movie because more people stay for the end credits than any other, and I think we let it out there that we had five post-credit scenes. Why so many post-credit scenes? I thought it was funny, and I know people like them, and so uh, I just wanted to cram as many in as I could and, and keep people around. We also did a lot with these end credits by Swarovski, who, you know, we, we made something much more visually arresting with the end credits than are normally done than the regular crawl at the end of a Marvel movie. We wanted to make it something there was stuff to watch throughout the whole thing. And I think it's so we got this old album covers inspiration that the, you know, Guardians are on those old album covers and kind of made it look as cool as possible. I really love it. Lots of little Easter egg moments with these hidden things, and I am Groot. Here's Weta, the guys who uh, did all the end of the, the movie stuff, the interior of Ego's planet, rocket, and many scenes. When you see all the people that have worked countless hours on this movie, it's really incredible, you know, and I'm so grateful to all of these people that have put their times and their lives into making this movie. High Priestess, the council is waiting. This is actually my favorite Elizabeth Debicki scene. I love seeing Aisha just start to come unhinged. There's something going very wrong with her in this moment. And we see it happening, you know? And we see her thirst for revenge, which leads to her creation of a very popular Marvel character, in which we're about to see in a second, the cocoon of Adam Warlock, one of my favorite characters. You know, I think I I, call him. in my original treatment for the movie, I actually had Adam Warlock as one of the characters. She made him early in the film. Um, but uh, I just, uh, I, it was one character too many. There's a lot of characters already in the movie. So I needed to lose one and I couldn't lose Mantis. She was incredibly important to the central story of Ego. And uh, I, I kept Mantis and saved Adam Warlock for a different day but he is a character I love. I loved what we did with him in the treatment, and, uh, and I can't wait to, uh, to unleash him upon the MCU. You know, I also, you know, it was also important because in the comics, here we have the characters dancing, which is ridiculous. In the comics, Adam Warlock is a big part of Infinity Wars, and as you know, and you know, probably know, you know, that movie is, is going to come out, Avengers Infinity War. It's going to have the Guardians. I'm an executive producer on the movie. Um, but Adam Warlock was not going to be in that movie, and he was never going to be in that movie. So I didn't want people to get too excited about Adam Warlock being a part of that film because he's a part of that storyline in the comics. But it's going to change for the cinematic universe. It was also a reason I almost didn't put that post credit scene in, but I'm really glad I did because I think it's important. That's Grandpa Quill dancing, Greg Henry, in case you didn't know who that was. And uh, we have Rooker dancing. He's a horrible dancer, great actor, horrible dancer. And then we have Jeff Goldblum dancing, who will be seen in Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> so a little, a little weird and me doing my baby Grant Groot move. Motors, 
coming up now, we have the next uh, post-credit scene, which is uh, Adolescent Groot. I think it's important um, that people know it's Adolescent Groot. It's not Teen Groot. It's more Tween Groot, and he's a little jerk. And we get to see him in his adolescent form. And we learn one very important thing, which is that Peter Quill can now understand adolescent group. He's been around him. And also, he's obviously taken on the role as a father uh, pretty well. I also think it's, it's a strangely important moment because he says at the end, now I know how Yandu felt, which means that some of Quill's negative view of Yandu probably came from Quill and not from Yandu, that he wasn't quite as bad as... Quill made him out to be. Part of him was just being an adolescent jerk, and we all know that Quill is stunted. There's Howard the Duck. This is uh, this song is written by me and um, uh, Tyler Bates. It is our first uh, pop song by our band, The Sneepers, and uh, it is uh, David Hasselhoff here talking about uh, you know the uh, the Procyon loader, which is a raccoon. And it's a lot of fun to make, and it was a lot of fun to shoot with David Hasloff, who's a great guy. I just want to thank everybody who's involved with this movie. Uh, man, there's so many people I didn't mention during this process, but I also didn't mention all of you, the fans, who actually sat through me saying this, unless you skip forward, which is also acceptable. I love all you guys. Uh, we definitely are Groot, and uh, I, I'm, I'm so appreciative to what you guys have given me over the past few years and our band of misfit malcontents uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy and we'll bring more to you guys very soon. Much love from here at Burbank, California.